Let's to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, verses 14 through 18 this morning. The title of our message is The World is at War with God. And personally, I find Revelation chapter 17 to be one of the more fascinating uh, parts of probably the most fascinating book of the Bible, personally speaking anyway, and that is Revelation 17 and 18. I find it fascinating because it seems very obvious uh, to me that the world is headed exactly in this direction. Uh, kind of as we saw in Sunday school this morning, learning about uh, ESG and China's credit social score and all of these kinds of things that are very real in the world today and seem to be described in the book of Revelation. But like our last uh, hymn that we just sang, More About Jesus, it's important for us to realize that the book of Revelation uh, Revelation is not the title. It's not the full title of the book anyway. It's up there every week. The Revelation, and I even have it in little letters, which maybe I should change. The Revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. It is a book that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of Babylon, even though it may seem like that over these last few weeks because that's what we've been concentrating on. But nevertheless, this is a book that is about the revelation of Jesus Christ and things that will happen in this world that will lead to Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over this earth. Uh, And that is what is being described in the very end of things is what we're studying now. But after that, Jesus Christ will finally and fully reign over this earth. He is not reigning over the kings of the earth today. That should be uh, patently obvious to us when we look at the various candidates that we have on both sides of the aisle. I'm not making any judgments here, but (laughs) candidates on both sides are not being ruled and reigned by Jesus Christ. Uh, In fact, In a lot of cases, it's exactly the opposite of that. But the fact that Christ is coming again to this earth to rule and reign over a kingdom of his own making ought to help us in our walk with him today. And understanding what is going to take place in the future and the fact that we can see it happening right before our very eyes, we are moving in that direction ought to help us in our walk with him. Studying these things and understanding this end time world empire should motivate us to be faithful in the meantime, especially as it is becoming more and more obvious that that this is happening. Uh, What the Bible prophesies or predicts to happen in the future is emerging right before our very eyes if we would just uh, pay attention to it. And that too should increase our faith in God and in His Word. Uh, Things that don't necessarily relate to the tribulation or the end times like, oh, I don't know, uh, faith, salvation by faith in Christ. 
the Bible has a lot to say about that. Uh, Walking by faith, being obedient to him by faith, walking in the spirit and these kinds of things that are revealed in the scriptures that are, that are very important for us in our day-to-day life and walk with the Lord are also in the Bible, not just things about the future. And our faith should be increased as we see the world moving in this direction. Uh, And we know that it's moving in that direction because of the things that we see in the words in the text. The Bible tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. It was at work in John's time back in the first century. And yes, in fact, it is in in, uh, the world in the 21st century also. We find ourselves in this the the main portion of Revelation that is about the tribulation period, this future seven-year period uh, in which God is unleashing his wrath upon the world for the express purpose of what we take away from uh, other places in the Bible, bringing the nation of Israel to faith in him. Jesus told the Jews before uh, he went to the cross that you will not see me. You did not believe in me when I came the first time, and you will not see me, the Messiah, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you recognize Israel that Jesus is the Christ. He will not come to this world. We find that in, in the Gospels, and Matthew in particular. Then Jesus lays out the events that will take place before he comes again. And not coincidentally enough, we see a, a direct correlation between what he describes in Matthew 24 and what we see in the book of Revelation. He's talking about the tribulation period in Matthew 24 that leads up to his coming again. That's exactly what Revelation is about. The events that take place before Jesus comes again. Some of those events we've seen are the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And now we're very focused on these bowl judgments. And particularly, we're going right down to to the veins on the leaves. We see the overall picture. Christ is coming again to establish his kingdom Uh, We look at some of the trees, like the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. Now we're right down on the leaves of the trees, looking at the city of Babylon that will be the the conglomeration, if you will, the coming together of this one world government that will rule over the earth. How How is the Antichrist and the false prophet going to enforce something like a mark of the beast, and you won't be able to buy and sell unless you take this mark, they're going to need some kind of governmental power to do that. And that is going to be headquartered in the city of Babylon, and that city is going to be destroyed. And that's what we're studying now in Revelation 17 and 18. And we find ourselves, we we have been introduced to this harlot, this woman riding on a beast, and we, we've already seen that the woman is Babylon. It, the woman represents a city that is very immoral, that is very 
anti-God and that she's being carried along by this beast that has uh, seven heads and ten horns, all of this figurative language to give us more information about this, this end times empire represented in this beast. That, and we've seen that the Antichrist and this one world kingdom have very similar descriptions because king and kingdom go together perfectly. Uh, and we'll get more into those details here shortly. Today we are concentrating on this futile war that the kings of the earth are going to wage against God himself, and that these kings in the end times actually do God's bidding. The last two weeks we have delved into uh, particularly well, what is encapsulated in verse 5, this woman riding on a beast with a name that is given to us. The name uh, is a mystery, and it is revealed to us. The angel reveals the mystery to John. We saw that in Revelation chapter uh, 17, verse 7. Why are you wondering? Why are you wondering about this mystery? I will tell you what the mystery is. Mystery is not a part of her name, uh, like is a very prevalent belief, Mystery Babylon. So now uh, we have to figure out what the mystery is, or we can make the mystery be whatever we want in spite of what the words on the page tell us. No, it is a mystery, and her name is Babylon the Great, and now the angel will tell us what the mystery is. Why does the, why does the beast have seven heads? Well, that is a description of the fact that there are essentially seven kingdoms revealed in Scripture that have to do with God and His plan for the world, and they are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and now the seventh, the end time coming one world empire is the seventh. The Antichrist is part of it. That's why he's described in an as an eighth, but also part of the seventh, it, that is a description of the Antichrist being a head over this uh, coming one world kingdom. Why does this end times uh, beast, or why does this beast have ten horns? As we saw last time, well, that's a description of the fact that it that it in the end, the world is going to be divided essentially into ten kingdoms, the Antichrist will be one of those. From the book of Daniel, we see that he subdues three of them and essentially becomes the head over this, the king or the head over this uh, one world empire in the end that will be headquartered in Babylon. And so why is, why is this woman called the mother of harlots? Well, we saw that too, that this, this kingdom, it does have a religious aspect, uh, and, and it's going to be very pagan in the end. We see the world headed in that direction. It's called the mother of harlots because Babylon is the birthplace of uh, paganism, of religion that is against God. We spent a lot of time uh, studying that. We looked at the mountains uh, also in this passage. We're not, we're not uh, looking for a city that is in a mountainous area like Denver or 
Uh, Aspen, Colorado, it's got a lot of mountains surrounding it. No, that's not, that is a wonderful example of a wooden literal translation. Uh, uh, seeing that this phraseology of mountains and then looking for a mountainous type of area. Well, why would we do that? When the passage tells us that the mountains are representative of something. Uh, the, the seven heads, it says in verse 9, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Oh, let's keep reading. Verse 10, they are seven kings. So we don't need to look for a geographical area that has a lot of mountains. No, the heads are seven mountains, which in the scriptures oftentimes are representative of kings and kingdoms, and that's precisely what it is here also in Revelation 17. And so we have these seven kingdoms. We have these 10 kings that are representative of the, uh, or the horns are representative of these 10 kingdoms. All This chapter 17 and 18 are about a literal city that will exist in the future by the name of Babylon. Personally, I believe that it is Babylon, and that it will be rebuilt, the, the Babylon of the world that we know from history. The headquarters of this entity, this thing, is going to be, I believe, according to a consistent literal reading of the scriptures in Babylon that we know of. Uh, there are several cities mentioned in the book of Revelation. Every one of them is literal. Jerusalem is a literal place. Babylon is a literal place. Uh, Ephesus is a literal place. Smyrna, Philadelphia. If we start uh, putting on our uh, spiritual interpretation hats with Babylon, well, then we can make Philadelphia mean whatever we want or Jerusalem mean whatever we want or Oh, let's say the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that comes down. Well, we can just make that be whatever we want to. And obviously that is a real mistake. So we shouldn't do that here in Revelation 17 either. But we see that this city is going to be destroyed and it may not be destroyed in the way that we think that, uh, in our mind's eye anyway, that we have thought that it would be. Uh, if I were writing this story, I would say, well, of course, God destroys Babylon. He's going to come down and he's going to obliterate it uh, with his spoken word. Interestingly, we find that's not the way that it's going to happen in our passages, our passage this morning. Notice Revelation 17, 14. These, these 10 kings, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these uh, and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be 
fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So in this uh, passage, we're going to see these kings are going to try to wage war against God himself. Uh, and it, it really seems like this is already happening in the world. Isn't the world system against God trying to eradicate God from the world? Yes, indeed, that is a fact. It is. 1 John 4 tells us why verse 1, beginning in verse 1, says, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So it would seem that today, in our world today, the spirit of Antichrist has more to do with spiritual Things. Why is there so much false doctrine in the world? Why are people so easily led astray from the truths of Scripture? Well, that's the work of this spirit of Antichrist that is in the world. There's also another avenue of work that the spirit of Antichrist is very busily doing and seems to be more and more in the world today, and that is attacking society itself. Why, why do we see the, the very foundations of our country uh, and morality and all of these kinds of things under absolute assault in this world today? That's because uh, the spirit of Antichrist, Satan himself, is becoming emboldened more and more in this world. And as the people give into it, he just does it even more. And it's a giant snowball effect. This spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. But in the end times, according to these verses, they are literally going to gather armies together and try to defeat Jesus Christ in this futile war against God. And so today we'll see, we'll spend some time looking at the elect people. What do all those terms mean that we see there in verse 14? Uh, the expansive kingdom and the executed purpose. But we begin with this uh, sometimes touchy subject that doesn't, it doesn't need to be uh, in verse 14, the elect people. Notice again what it says there. These, the 10 kings, will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. I've already informed you a few times about who these are, uh, and they are the 10 kings. Verses 8 through 14 are actually all one paragraph. If you have an NASB, it makes a new section there, and I actually made a section out of it as well. But that's not really the way it appears in the Scriptures. Uh, Over the top of verse 14, it says in my Bible anyway, victory the lamb. But if you notice closely in the NASB 95 version anyway, they have this technique that they actually put in bold the verse numbers that are the beginning of a new 
paragraph, if you have that and you notice that, that's why verse 8, for example, the number 8 is in bold, and then the next number that's in bold is verse 15. That This is a technique, uh, your, your Bible may already have it in paragraph form, so then it's easy. Mine is just verse, each verse is on its own line, so that's how they're telling you where the paragraphs are. And that's that's true. Verse 8 through 14 is all one paragraph. So what what's a paragraph? What does that even mean? Good question. Uh, a paragraph, according to the Oxford Dictionary anyway, is one or more sentences dealing with one point. So that's important. The whole structure, the whole paragraph is about one point. Point. That's the way it's supposed to be anyway, back when you were writing English papers and these kinds of things. You get a group of sentences that come together to form one point, and then you move on to the next point in a new paragraph. So, well, what's a sentence? That's a good question too. A set of words that uh, form one complete thought. All of these uh, kinds of ideas are important for us in understanding the Bible because That's the way God determined that he would communicate with you and me through his written word. So uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I think it's rather fortunate that we have a written word because you don't have to rely on uh, me and what I may or may not have heard from the Lord last night when I come up here. If I start doing that to you, feel free to fire me and not let me come up here if I'm just telling you my intuition of what the Lord said to me last night. No, we all have a copy of God's word to us, and you can compare what I say or the guy on YouTube says or what you're thinking personally with what's written down in here as God's word. So God is determined to communicate with us in the written word, so we have to understand the rules of language. And some of those rules are paragraphs and sentences, complete thoughts and putting them together. And so verse 14 actually goes with the description of the beast in these these 10 kings. The 10 kings who make up this one world empire are actually going to try to wage war against the Lord like literal, physical war. Whatever they have, there's uh, various scholars have various opinions. Are they going to be what we think of as ancient weaponry? Some good people think that. They're going to literally be on horses with swords and, and these kinds of things. Others, good scholars, take the position of, well, this is just language that is used to describe things that John wouldn't have known. He doesn't know what a tank or an airplane or a missile is in the first century. So he's just, and various authors, Ezekiel, same kind of thing, describing future battles, uh, just using words that he has to describe things that he understands as warfare, but can't really uh, describe perfectly. Uh, I'll leave you to your own thoughts 
in that in that regard. Personally, I kind of I go back and forth. Sometimes I think, well, it's going to be ancient weaponry. Other times, like, well, boy, how are they going to have control over the whole world and everything that's bought and sold without some form of technology? And if they have technology, well, they're probably going to have weapons. And so I go, these are the kinds of things I think about when I drive back and forth to <laughs> work sometimes. At any rate, what we do know for sure is that all the nations of the world are going to participate in this war against God. Revelation 16, including the United States, if we even exist then. Uh, Revelation 16 and verse 13 says, And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Go out to the kings of the world. No exceptions there. Uh, Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. No exceptions there. The nations of the world are going to attempt to wage war against Jesus Christ. And uh, spoiler alert, they're not going to be successful. And John the angel, the Lord, however you want to look at it, continues to remind his audience of this fact. We've already seen several reminders that the Lord, in the midst of describing the tribulation, oh, by the way, Jesus is going to be successful. We've seen that in Revelation 11, Revelation 14, uh, Revelation 16, here again, we see it in Revelation 17. The Lord is going to be victorious, uh, no kidding, <laughs> when the nations of the world try to literally wage war against him. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, verse 14 says, because he is Lord of lords and King of Kings, we don't have to use our imagination as to who the Lamb is. That's already been described for us. Back in Revelation 5, 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, John says, and the elders, a Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The Lamb is Jesus Christ himself. Of course, he is the one who is breaking the, the seals on the scroll, if you will remember. This isn't Satan's wrath or the world's wrath that's being poured out on the earth. This is God's wrath as evidenced by the fact that Jesus Christ is the one breaking the seals. And as we will see in Revelation 19, and in fact, we even see here, that he is going to be victorious over the powers of the world. He, it says, will overcome them. Nikao is the term where we get 
uh, well, it's not really, I guess we get at the, the name for some athletic uh, gear that you may have. Nike or Nike comes from this same uh, term to overcome, to conquer. That's what the term means uh, here, as well as for uh, if you wear Nike shoes, you're going to be victorious. Of course, that's the, uh, the implication uh, anyway. He overcame sin. Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, Jesus says, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. We spent a lot of time studying this uh, passage. Two thrones here. Jesus is on a particular one, as it is stated right now. He's on his Father's throne. He's not sitting on his own throne as it is right now. That is in the future. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Future tense there to the one who overcomes uh, will be granted to sit with Christ on his throne when he sits on his throne in the future. Now he's on the father's throne Why? Because he overcame sin on the cross. He is the one who overcame sin. We overcome sin, not through following nine of the Ten Commandments or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or just being really good people. No, we overcome by faith, trust in the one who overcame for us. 1 John 5, 5, who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We overcome by faith in Christ, the one who overcame for us. And notice why uh, Jesus overcame and overcomes these 10 kings. It says there in verse 4, because he is Lord of lords, and he is king of kings. He is the Lord. We don't make him the Lord. How could we possibly make one who is something that he already is? That's not a, that's not a part of salvation. That's not a part of earning your way into heaven or making sure that you're in heaven, that you have made Jesus Lord. No, he is Lord. And he overcomes these 10 kings because he is the Lord of lords. Uh, We become saved people by faith, by one single condition, believing in Christ and what he has done us. He also overcomes these 10 kings because he, in fact, is the king of kings. It says here, he is not currently, notice again that this is speaking in the future, that he is the king of kings. Yes, he has that title now. Uh, I, you know, sometimes we may get a little too nitpicky and say, oh no, well, Jesus isn't king. Uh, because he's not ruling and reigning over the earth today. Well, 
that's true. He's not ruling and reigning over the earth, but he, he will be king over this earth in the future. He may have the title today, but he doesn't necessarily have the position as ruling and reigning over the earth. But make no mistake, he will in the future when he comes again. And notice who is with Christ here. Here's where we get to the supposedly touchy part. Uh, those who are with him, it says in the NASB, are the called and chosen and faithful. And you may notice a uh, if you have an NASB that those words are the are in italics. That is an indication to us that they are not in the original. Those were added by the translators to supposedly make it more readable for us. And a lot of times, uh, particularly in passages that uh, have these particular words like called, chosen, and faithful, they are added, okay, to make it more readable, but also to give it a certain spin. Uh, And that's why it says, are the called and chosen and faithful. Uh, And a lot of times you'll see these italics italicized words added in that make these terms sound more like verbs and uh, or participles, words of action, if you will, uh, to make a, give us the impression that God has called a subset of society and he in eternity past determined that a subset of the world are chosen and he picked them and he didn't pick the rest. And these people will then, because they are God's subset of called and God's subset of the chosen, well, that's why they are uh, also faithful. And that, beloved, is a very wrong way to interpret what these words actually are, uh, on the page. Uh, one, we know that these, this is describing the same group of people who are going to be with the Lord when he comes again, Revelation 19 and verse 14, when he comes again to establish his kingdom on the earth. That's what Revelation 19 is describing. And personally, I think that's what is being described in these particular Verses. This particular verse also is describing the end when Christ comes again. Revelation 19.14 describes these people with the Lord as the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And we're not going to spend all the time uh, tearing this verse apart right now, because we'll do that in the future when we get to Revelation 19. But uh, the conclusion is going to be that these are us. These are believers in Christ who are accompanying Jesus when he comes again to the earth. And they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And we've discussed this this clothing already in Revelation, and we know that these are clothes that are given to 
believers. We're not earning these. They're given to believers as a, a and symbolic of the covering that we receive by faith in Christ. And we will accompany Christ in the end. So if it's describing that group of people in Revelation 19, it's describing the same group of people here in Revelation 17 and verse 14. Those who are with him, literally it would say, those who are with him called, chosen, and faithful. And the R that is there, A-R-E, could, is uh, supplied, is, is understood, if you will, in the language. Greek, a lot of times, will leave out that uh, state of being verb, the word are or is, is left out. It's just understood to be there. So those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful, is what it literally says. So uh, what does it mean when it says that they are called? First word, kletos, is the, the Greek term there. And uh, if you listen to some expositors, you would think, well, the, this word called and chosen, these must, I mean, they must be in the Bible a thousand times, right? Because that's, that's all we want to talk about is uh, the, the called and the chosen or the elect. Well, that word kletos, it is in the New Testament a grand total of 10 times. And it is simply describing or a term that is used to describe those who respond to a summons. Every time that it is used in the New Testament, that's what it means. It is, it is describing people who don't just hear a call, but they respond to the call. So the phone rings, they pick it up, and they say, hello. And somebody on the other end says, be my apostle. Okay, I will be your apostle. And then and only then are they referred to as a called person. They hear the call, they hear the summons, they respond positively to the summons, each and every time that it is used, all 10 of them. <laughs> it's used in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Many are called, few are chosen. So the call goes out, but they're not uh, referred to the called until they actually respond. Paul responded to his calling as an apostle. Believers are called as saints. All of these kinds of terms can be synonymous. The called, all of the, all of the saints are called, and all of the called in Scripture are saints. The, the two are, are completely uh, intertwined, if you will. They mean the same thing. There is a call, and you respond positively every single time the word is used. All the called are believers, and all believers are called. End of discussion. That's what that, that term means. So the people who are uh, responding to or, or who are with the Lord have responded positively to a call. That is why they are called the called. And, or, or 
That's, they're not even called the called here. They're just called called. They're a group of people who have responded positively to a calling from the Lord. Notice that they are also, in the NASB anyway, referred to as chosen. And this is one that really uh, gets people into trouble. Eklektos is the Greek term, sometimes translated as elect, sometimes translated as chosen. Very few, if ever, uh, translated as what it ought to be, which is uh, choice. And this term eklektos is used of Jesus himself. He is called elect. Uh, in the time that it is refer, the times in the scriptures that it's used to refer to Jesus, they the translators will usually use a word like chosen. Jesus is the chosen one. Now let's examine that concept here for a second. Is Jesus chosen? from a group of people or entities who may have been qualified to be the Messiah? No, of course not. Uh, That goes without saying. So the same term is used to describe Jesus as the chosen one. He he is, uh, in that term, choice would be a much better description of that term like choice beef. You go to the grocery store and it's grade A. It's the best, right? It it is the one that you want. It is better. It is choice beef. Jesus is choice. He is grade A. He is the only one who fits the bill. And that's a good way of looking at this term elect or chosen First uh, Peter two four is where we see this term being used of Jesus. Peter says, First Peter two four, and coming to him Christ as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice eclectos, and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So that this passage really uh, sums it up, this term, elect, choice, chosen, eklektos is the Greek term. Jesus is the one. He is the choice, precious stone that has been laid out there for us. And if you believe in him, you too will be uh, choice, it says there in part of that that I don't see now, (laughs) Uh, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones, why in the world are you a living stone that is like Christ, who is the choice stone? Because you believe in him. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. God confers that 
uh, choiceness, if you will, or that election upon you at the instant that you believe in Christ, you too become a living stone that is able to be used for the Lord. It's also interesting to note in this term, eklektos, uh, at least in its noun form, is only used 22 times in the New Testament. Now, when you're studying Greek, typically you study words that are used at least 50 times in the New Testament. If it isn't used 50 times, uh, it's not even in your vocabulary list, except for uh, words like this one that uh, people have determined that are important. And it is an important word. It becomes more important when people misuse it and then try to uh, convince us that, no, this term means that there is a subset of humanity that God chose in eternity past uh, to have eternal life, and he, uh, some will say, chose others for eternal punishment. That's what's known as double predestination. Others are less consistent in their interpretation and just say, uh, or in their theology and just say, oh no, God didn't choose. He just didn't choose them. He passed over this other subset uh, and now they're destined for hell too. Uh, (laughs) So there's uh, at least, you got to at least give it to the double predestinationers. uh, They're at least consistent in their interpretation. The others are not, but they're both wrong. Uh, That isn't what the term means. Yes, God determined ahead of time, as we read in Romans chapter 8, how people will be saved. His plan, as we've studied in Revelation and in Ephesians, at the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for how people would be saved. And it would be that the choice one, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, would take on human flesh, come into the world, die for sins, die for the sins of the world, all the sins of all people, past, present, and future sins, paid for on the cross of Christ. And if you will believe in him, he will give you eternal life. And so if you want to think about it in this way, yes, there are, there is an elect group of people that God chose, quote unquote, in eternity past. And it is all those who will believe in him. And any person can believe in him. That's why it is a free honest offer of salvation to any and every person. You don't have to wonder whether or not your cousin or your friend is elect in order to give them the gospel, to give them the chance of salvation. Any person can be saved because every sin has been paid for by Christ. And so just like, uh, all the called are believers and all believers are called. All the elect 
are believers and all believers are elect. All believers have been saved to serve the Lord. You and I have been saved for a purpose. That's another concept of election. Just like uh, Paul was called to be an apostle, he's also uh, chosen to be an apostle. He was saved for the purpose of being an apostle. You are saved for the purpose of serving the Lord with your life. And the reason that you're saved is by grace. God offers it to you and you receive it by way of faith. That's why that term is also thrown in here, called, chosen, and faithful. Faithful, coincidentally enough, is used 67 times in the New Testament. So in Bible study, you want to major on the terms that are repeated. That's one when you're even studying a, a certain passage of Scripture, you want to look for words that are repeated. And you can kind of do the same thing in the overall concept of Scripture, uh, big concepts of Scripture like salvation. Okay, uh, how is a person saved? By faith. In Christ, the Bible tells us that about 250 times. There's 250 verses in the Bible, approximately, that say a person is, receives eternal life by a single condition, and that is faith, believing, trust in Christ. And now we can go to other passages, uh, and some people, some denominations, will build entire doctrines on the idea that, well, no, you have to be baptized. If I go to this passage, it says X, Y, or Z. Yeah, but there's 250 other verses that tell us that we're saved by faith, so there must be something else going on in that passage that mentions being baptized or losing our salvation. You can apply this to all sorts of concepts. Major on the majors and minor in the minors. Understand the broad concepts of Scripture like being saved by faith and then go to those other passages understanding that I've been told 250 times I'm saved by faith. So I have to understand this other single verse that may appear to be saying something else. Same kind of concept here. We, in order to accompany the Lord, the most important concept to take away from this is that we are faithful because that idea is related to us over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. Believing, these people are faithful. They have believed the ones who are with the Lord are those who have believed. And that's uh, the, a lot goes into that. God's plan for salvation is that all who would believe have a predetermined salvation path. They are justified by the Lord and they will be glorified in the future. That's what Romans 8, 28 through 30 is telling us, we know that God causes all things to, get, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not a promise that all your bills are going to be paid and everything's just coming up roses at all times. 
No, it's, it, it, it is a promise that God is working the circumstances of our life, whether they, we perceive them to be good or bad, he's working them together for his purpose, essentially to conform us to his image. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, be con, to become conformed to the image of his son. He's working on that process now in our lives through the cir- circumstances of our life. In the future, it will be completed. He goes on, he says, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. Same terms. Those who responded to the call were justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So uh, we have two of our three tenses of salvation. All of the justified uh, are also in the future glorified at the rapture of the church. And Paul, if you know the book of Romans, has just spent uh, seven and a half chapters telling you that you are lost because of sin and you are saved by faith in Christ. Uh, not that there's a subset of people who are God's on God's nice list, everybody else is on God's naughty list, and that's already been predetermined. That's Santa Claus. <laughs> God isn't Santa Claus. Jesus isn't Santa Claus. He died for the sins of the world. He offers salvation to you if you will just accept it and believe in it. And uh, you know what? We're going to stop right there for today uh, and be encouraged that as a believer, you have salvation. It's not because God picked you uh, in eternity past and he didn't pick your brother or your sister or your cousin or your mean neighbor. Obviously, he didn't pick them. He picked me because I'm so great. That's kind of where that sort of doctrine leads to. No, he desires for the entire world to be saved And he offers salvation to us all because he died for us all. And now it's just incumbent upon us to believe in him. And when we do, Paul says in Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? These ten kings, are these ten kings against us? Uh, Are the the person in the White House, is, is he against us? Uh, you know, is the, is the mayor, the police force, the uh, politically correct force, whoever it is that's going to quote-unquote come and get us, do we need to really be worried for, about these kinds of things, knowing who is for us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? If you're a believer, who's, who's charging you with anything that has to do with this world and, and Satan's evil plan for this world? It's all meaningless. God is the one who justifies. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as, as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing else needs to be said about that. Amen. Praise him for what he has done for us. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the fact of the matter that you have, that you love the world and that you came into this world to die for sinners like me and like all of these dear saints who are with me in this room. I thank you so much for coming into this world and shedding your blood for us so that we could have salvation through faith in you. Salvation is all by you because you accomplished it all. And I thank you for that incredible gift. I thank you for making that gift available to us by simply trusting in you. You don't require us to keep a set of rules and regulations. You don't even require us to acknowledge every one of our sins before you and promise to never do them again and, and live up to some standard that we would never be able to do. Instead, you just make it so very simple for us to just trust in you, to believe in you, to rely upon you and your sacrifice. And I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that this truth would change us, that it would motivate us to serve a God, the God, who is so loving and so kind and so gracious to give us eternal life by simply trusting in you. I pray that that, would, would conform, that alone would conform us to your image. But we also have the Holy Spirit given to us. The blessings are innumerable and unnameable. We don't even understand them all, but you, you have also given us your Holy Spirit to indwell us and guide us in our walk with you. I thank you for that and pray that we would be soft to his leading in our lives. I pray that you would be with us in this week to come and that we would be lights for you in this world that is at war with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.